Hello and welcome to the new season of Facilitate Talks. This season, we have left our living rooms and are entering a post-pandemic world, back in the office, back to events, and at the end of this season, we'll be back in Miami. (laughs) Um, I actually have a couple of statistics for you, Anthony, if you'd be interested to hear them. Yeah, I, I love statistics. So, so far, we have 36 speakers, we have a 30% increase in stands and floor space, 65% of our stands have already sold and people are going big. I mean, I know we've already been having conversations about your presence at, in Miami, but honestly, we've had so many conversations now already about how much floor space people want um, and even like what vehicles and things people are going to need. It's... Um, it's, it's Wait, what, 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 what? <laughs> I know. I, I don't want to share too much at this point. We've got a whole season of episodes to uh, to be revealing these secrets, but um, it's it's getting bigger. Um, I think one of the things to note is that we're moving away from the hotel conference situation and turning into a big expo now. As the field grows, we're just getting bigger and bigger, um, and it's just yeah, it's a very exciting time. I think. So we're in a grown-up conference center. We are. Uh, not not a hotel and it's there are a lot of percentages there i didn't get all the numbers but i i guess my question is those numbers sound good everything's bigger but uh where are we relative to two years ago when which was the last time this happened because we've skipped a year in case anyone hasn't noticed yeah so um two years ago we were tracking about 40 percent growth and uh confirmed bookings and things like that around august we're now at over 60 percent so it's quite a significant jump um and actually what we're finding is that demand is so much higher people are actively coming to us so wait a sec so the, the the floor space and the blah 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 is bigger and you're further ahead in in it getting booked out than we were two years ago Exactly. And as, as I say, the demand is huge. I think people are desperate to get back to those face-to-face environments now. We've had a few face-to-face meetings uh, over the last month or two, you know, which we would call non-essential business travel. And people have sort of been giddy at those meetings. It's been so good to get face-to-face with people finally after all this time. Well, that's great. I think that's, uh, that's about as good as you could probably, possibly wish for at this point. Yeah, absolutely. We're very excited. Um, and obviously looking ahead to those in six months, think how much growth is going to happen again, you know, it's, yeah. and then some. So keeping on the theme of looking ahead, this week's episode is actually focused on what the future holds for cell and gene therapies. So before we introduce our guests, Anthony, what should we be discussing with regard to manufacturing capacity and building capacity to cope with an industry with significant opportunity for expansion? Yeah, so it's a great combo today. Uh, we've got Bruce Levine, who has this you know, amazing ability to see around corners from a, a technical and a scientific and a medical uh, perspective. Uh, but we have also got Audrey Greenberg from Discovery Labs and their center, uh, where they, the big question is that they're, looks like they're building it, I, I guess, and on the assumption that they will come. Uh, I guess we'll find out whether that's the case. Uh, but manufacturing capacity has been an issue in this field year after year after year. Every year we say, well, that won't be an issue next year. And it still is. And guess what? This year it still is. So I'll be really interested to hear what they have to say on that. Lovely. Thank you. Um, Shall we introduce our guests? Yeah, let's let's introduce uh, our guests. So it's an absolute pleasure to kick off with two superstars of the cell and gene therapy field uh, today. Uh, First, I'll introduce Audrey Greenberg. Audrey is the co-founder of Discovery Labs and the Center for Breakthrough Medicines. 
uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, she's got a, a really interesting background, which I'll probably ask her a little bit more about in the in this podcast. A background in real estate, uh, a background in pharma, a background in financial services. Really interesting intersection uh, to, uh, of fields. So, Audrey, welcome. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Uh, Bruce Levine, um, he's a professor, he's a Barbara and Edward Netter professor in cancer gene therapy, uh, also at Penn. He's founding director of the, the clinical cell and vaccine production facility there in the, in the, in the pathology department. Uh, Bruce has been uh, really a mentor to the field uh, as much as providing material inputs himself to the field for many decades. Been my pleasure to, uh, to to speak with him, to ask his opinions on matters, and to interview him at conferences for many years now. Uh, Bruce, it's great to see you again. I can't believe I haven't actually seen you uh, for about eighteen months. That's probably a record for us both, right? Yeah, Anthony, great to be with you, and we see each other today in two dimensions. But uh, before too long, we'll be in person. And I can't wait. And uh, that applies to. Audrey, Georgie, and it applies to all of you people out there uh, wishing we could be doing this properly in person, but uh, soon. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, for the format of this season, we are we have asked our guests to bring with them a question each. Um, I don't know whether, Audrey, if you want to kick off with your question for our speakers. Sure. Would you like me to read the question? Yes, please do. So how are today's CDMOs building flexibility into their offering to align with the changing needs and profiles of today's developers, both from small to large, including the ability to offer supplemental support during process development, transferring processes in or out at any stage, or taking full processes from research all the way to commercial? quite a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a long question. <laughs> it's such a good question. I mean, the, yeah, there's about six questions. So total, total, <laughs> Audrey, uh, there's about six questions there. I, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on one and kick it over to Bruce, which is, you know, the field is, let's be honest, the field has really struggled with CMOs over many, many years, uh, hand carrying these delicate manufacturing processes across you know, state lines, international lines, oceans, and uh, then expecting the CMO just to you know, hit it. Um, how on earth are they also going to do development work, which is you know, 10 times more complex than just knocking out manufacturing runs? Bruce, is, is this, you know, is Audrey dreaming or is there some uh, basis in reality here, do you think? Well, it's good to dream because dreams can come true. Uh, but uh, to get to the meat of the question, uh, there are many different models. There's that traditional model where there's the handoff. In cell and gene therapy, as you allude to, Anthony, I, I think that can be problematic without deep experience uh, of the company. Now, there are other models, right? There is person and plant, there is the furnished apartment version, there is the shell space, uh, and there are modular bills that can be slid in and then you can take advantage of the infrastructure around that the CDMO has built. Uh, but uh, I think we're further along than we used to be in terms of uh, being able to find people who can work and 
um, get up to speed quickly in a CDMO. Uh, we have had rapid expansion in the field over the past decade. Uh, there still is a severe talent shortage, and we can talk more about that. Uh, and uh, I think the customers have gotten a little more discerning and wiser on what they need. Uh, you used to find, let's say a decade ago, where someone would come to a CDMO and expect everything to be handled and they didn't need to do anything. Uh, I think there's the realization now that it really has to be a partnership. Uh, so I, I am really encouraged by the expansion in the space, uh, the uh, CDMO expansion in terms of physical infrastructure, but also partnerships. And there have been mergers and acquisitions, as you know. And all of that has a ripple effect in uh, gaining attention for the field and the need and encouraging more people to uh, choose at an early stage in their career or maybe a middle stage of their career uh, to uh, choose this field. Uh, I want to put it hook back on something you said there, uh, Bruce, which I think is spot on, and it's uh, it was something we were maybe thinking about talking about later, as you as you both know. Uh, this this talent thing, Audrey, uh, in the in the Disco Labs Deerfield management press release of uh, January 2020, I think it was, uh, you said uh, you uh, the. Discovery Labs at the time, I guess, said when you set up the CDMO, you're expecting to hire more than 2,000 team members within the next 30 months. Yeah. How's, how's that going? Yeah. So, well, there's something that happened just after that press release, which was the was COVID pandemic. But um, not notwithstanding that, I think that, look, the Discovery Labs, as you know, is our real estate arm. We have 2.4 million square feet of life science real estate in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, as Bruce nicely coined the phrase, in Silicon Valley. We also have a 700,000 square foot CDMO called the Center for Breakthrough Medicines on our site. And as you said, in that press release, we did an announce a 2000 employees that are going to be hired. It's now over the next five years. So we're phasing it out a bit. Uh, we have our first set of GMP labs online, which we're thrilled to talk about doing testing and analytics. And we are in the process of constructing our first phase of viral vector suites, uh, soon followed by our cell therapy processing suite. So we're happy that things are progressing nicely despite uh, COVID and certainly um, some setbacks at the onset of the pandemic certainly led to a shining light on our industry, you know, set to save us from the pandemic. So we we saw a lot of increased attention in our space. And as you mentioned, you know, a capacity coming online um, that's really been driven by a few factors, uh, the amount of capital flowing into the space, the amount of therapies in the FDA pipeline, the FDA fast tracking approvals. I don't see any of those things slowing down anytime soon. And all of those lead to and are leading indicators for not just uh, supply, but also demand. Oh, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. Yes, absolutely. My question was unfair, but it, uh, it made it a little bit more fun. Uh, honestly, when we saw that press release in January of last year, um, we we applauded it because it was sort of the first time that anyone has spoken of this sort of number, uh, you know, 2,000 headcount actually being something which this industry needs. And, uh, you know, at, over at Dark Horse, we, 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 we couldn't agree more. Um, it's just a really, uh, you know, even over five years, I'm sure it's, it's a, a really high bar you, you, you've set yourself there. I mean, Bruce, 
come on. When when you tech transferred what became Kim Raya, how many people were involved? Well, I'm going to get less, less than 2,000, yeah. right? Uh, maybe less than 2,000 in the manufacturing and the analytics, but when you take into account the clinical teams and the clinical sites and the development that we did at Penn and Children's Hospital, uh, it's not far off when you look at the whole time span of development from our first infusions in 2010 in adults and 2012 in kids to FDA approval in 2017. So. I think it's a good bet that somewhere around a couple thousand people did touch that project. Uh, but if you're asking in, in manufacturing, yeah, that's less. And, and it, you know, we talked about people, about hiring them. Uh, there still is a um, training issue, a uh, talent issue. And, and I'm interested in Audrey's thoughts on this. Uh, Audrey, how do you think about accelerating not just hiring people, but getting them into a position where they're able to work on products? Yeah, that's a great question, Bruce. And I appreciate the attention because everyone talks about capacity constraints in terms of physical space and that 1% of current demand is being met supply-wise. But that also applies to people, equipment, um, analytical methods, and things that are feeding the system and supporting the therapy. So in terms of people, um, it's not just hiring, as you mentioned, it's also training, onboarding, and retaining those people and continuing to train them over time. And what we're doing at the Center for Breakthrough Medicines, first of all, we're blessed to be based in Philadelphia, where there's 70,000 life science employees, 10,000 of which have cell and gene therapy experience, and some of which also come from big pharma and have that really hard to find GMP manufacturing experience. So we're really lucky to be here, but obviously that's not enough. Uh, we need to be proximate to educational research and academic institutions that are training and churning out new talent every day, which Philadelphia is. But then in the fact, in, in terms of um, continuing education and um, specific training to what we're doing at the Center for Breakthrough Medicines, we're partnering with uh, institutions in our area to offer GMP, cell and gene therapy manufacturing and analytical method training and development, as well as uh, creating a really robust in-house training mechanism um, that is supported by technology so that we can track where everyone is in the process um, and make sure to continue to train them over time. Uh, but that also is not enough. I think there is something that needs to happen. And I think the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce and Wexford and the Science Center and some of the institutions here are making some efforts in this regard to train workers that may not come from this industry and may not have degrees, taking high school students that can work in a lab and training them for six weeks to six months and how to work in a lab, how to work in a GMP suite, how to change a bioreactor bag. We need all staff at all levels helping us to manufacture these therapies. I would be remiss to not mention that a lot of these processes right now that are developed in academic labs are nascent, they're very manual. So automating processes will also create a lack of need for the amount of labor, not to say that that need won't be there, but helping to offset that would be automating a lot of the processes so that the manual intervention isn't there. And also having a CDMO that can leverage talent across many therapeutics is also important such that 
that knowledge, that know-how can be used, uh, what would be deemed as downtime, let's say, in an innovator company, you're really getting that maximum throughput on the staff when you're able to work across uh, several therapies. Yeah, so interesting. I think it's the it's the skilled, frequent skilled human intervention we find in our COGS analyses, which is a major driver of the cost of manufacturing. And either you know the, the the recruiting of the of the skills that you're talking about, Audrey, or and or automation um, is is going to be critical for the field. Now, you did mention earlier that you you, you scaled back your hiring goals from uh, two to five years. Um, is that materially impacting your ability to grow the facility? You said also in that press release, I think you were hoping to you, know, you were taking reservations for late. Um, yeah, I think you said you were taking reservations for late 2020. Uh, late 2020. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, so it's most late 2020. So I'm anxious to hear you know how that's going in, in practice. Yeah, so that got bumped a year, unfortunately, due to construction delays from the pandemic. But we have um, our first group of customers, which I'm happy to announce uh, that we're doing work for now, and they're slated to go into GMP suites uh, mid next year. So we're very happy about our 2021 uh, progress and our 2022 delivery. Yeah, that's great news. I mean, really can't come too soon. All we see is people screaming for more and more GMP space. We we are on site at builds uh, every five minutes, it seems, uh, for, for many of our clients uh, and our client CMOs. So, yeah, so I, I, you know, Godspeed with all of that. And hopefully you'll be able to claw back some time uh, on the on those goals. Uh, Bruce, mean, uh, you know, sorry, Anthony. Does that mean we'll get more photos of you in a hard hat of our social media channels? <laughs> oh, I, I did. Get a picture <laughs> of, yeah, two of us in a hard hat. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's great. It really is part of our life that we we wander around in hard hats more and more and more. Um, Audrey, I've got to get in a hard hat in your <laughs> um, which I would love to do. Uh, I would put I, one on now if I would, they were in within yeah. reach. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's a good thing that it's, uh, it's in reach now because the building is going on a pace. And a really interesting thing, Audrey, and maybe Bruce, you also have input on this, is you know when I started doing this a couple of decades ago, the thought of going from conceptual design to ribbon cutting in less than two years was just out of the question. Uh, but with the advent of modular and semi-modular. Uh, approaches to building uh, clean rooms and building the overall structure and, and facilities and utilities. Uh, I now see timelines, we've seen crazy, like six to nine month timelines yeah. uh, for going the whole way, which is, again, just great because it's not only speed, but flexibility. Yeah, I think that's uh, what I meant by one of the ripple effects of the growth in this industry and in CDMO financings and mergers and acquisitions is that uh, not only from the manufacturing point of view, the tools and equipment manufacturers are developing more quickly, but the facilities engineering facil uh, facilitators are uh, enabling that build. Uh, and I want to make one point going back to the uh, labor effort and, and manipulations and highly skilled, you know, that that's a risk, not just in the cost of a product, but in variability and potential for deviations and requirements for investigation. So the more that we can automate, uh, and I'll say the more that we can shorten and adapt a process, 
the better able we are going to be uh, to develop these products and to work with the talent that we have. Yeah, that's Another. one of the reasons we started the Center for Breakthrough Medicines really is to make cell and gene therapy more affordable and accessible. Uh, and being a singularly focused cell and gene therapy CDMO, we're really trying to deal with the industry, right? Not only the capacity constraints, but the challenges that are taking place across the industry, like Bruce just mentioned, you know, automating processes, making um you know, start to finish from cell growth to upstream to downstream, that entire process more efficient, automating where we can, um, and really, really trying to offer um, a platform technology that's proven GMP grade platform technology, not just terms of manufacturing know-how, but materials and analytical methods to offer those to startup companies and those at any point, frankly, in their life cycle that need it so that they can speed their path to approval. Bruce, how, this is a horrible word, how platformable really is cell and gene therapy? Because a lot of the time, you know, Audrey, sponsors will come to you with really the way they want to do it. And the way you want to do it might be over here. Yeah, well, Anthony, if you say a word in an English accent, anything can sound <laughs> good. But I, I might bubbles pushing it, but anyway. Yeah, I might change that word a, a little bit. Um, look, there there are some platforms, some equipment, let's say that uh, could be a platform, uh, but there are. A lot of approaches, a lot of products and development and differentiating, and we're still exploring all of the variables that make a potent product. So I think there will be platformability to a certain extent, uh, but it's not going to be uniform across the industry, not only because we're working on so many cell types, uh, there are gene modified cells, there are different disease indications, uh, so I, I think we're going to be in, uh, uh, for the foreseeable future, in an era of mass customization with tools that allow us to integrate automation and uh, new techniques. We, we've, ca we've characterized it in the past as the, uh, as the off-the-shelf approach to manufacturing where you use something, you know, something like the Prodigy or, or, or just an A to Z integrated manufacturing solution of which there are now you know, many more in development in addition to that equipment uh, versus the, build, the build a bear approach where you, you bolt a lot of things together uh, to form your yeah. manufacturing process. And you might take something from Cytiva, you might take something from PAL, you might take something from Miltony. Um, I mean, Audrey, that, that approach, it, it, it's got to be a bit irritating in principle for, for, a, for a CDMO. Look, we have to maintain an open mind and an open heart in many ways. It's all about the patient. So if a, if a customer or client comes to us with a process that's patchwork together, we'll work with them to improve that or we'll take it as is and make it work. So we have to have an open mind. But, you know, there's really four main areas of focus for us. I would say the first is obviously designing a facility to meet these needs that's flexible, right? So you have to have the manufacturing capacity that's also yeah. flexible in terms of your facility design, which is what we're going through now. You have to have the analytical methods that are a full spectrum of tests that you can offer to your clients. And that way you can have it, um, you know, right next door. 
So you don't have to outsource to a different testing provider. You want to have supply chain simplification. The fact that we have viral vector production, cell therapy production, plasma production, testing all under one roof is great for supply chain simplification. And then last, what we've all been talking about really is technology and automation, but not just on the shop floor automation. A lot of CDMOs may not put in place uh, platform technology across for the operating platform in terms of your quality systems, in terms of your scheduling systems, in terms of your supply chain. So putting in place best in class technology to run the operation and to run the shop floor is really what's going to result in efficient lot release uh, and getting patient secures that they need. Audrey, are you, are you talking to the FDA yet? Uh, we are. So we have an entire quality division uh, run by Mike McCormick, who has, you know, 20 plus years of, in the industry. And he has um, not only uh, engaged with the FDA, but he is working with several um, advisory committees and boards and practice groups to help set standards across the board. Uh, there's been a lot of hiccups lately that we've all been seeing in potency assay and whatnot as products get to the final phases of approval. So having analytical methods early in a product's life cycle that it can accommodate changes to processes in terms of scale and whatnot is going to be very important to prove comparability um, and quality for that manager. But, but yes, to answer your question directly, yes. Yeah, I think the you know the, the comparability issue is something that we just are seeing again and again. Like you say, there've been some very you know ugly moments from the, the potency assay perspective and other other analytical perspective. Just warms my heart to hear you know someone with your influence and seniority stressing analytics so much uh, because you know I mean Bruce, that's something which I think we all sort of and we neglected it in the early days but i think e even e even then we we sort of underestimated how what a massive issue it was going to become with these very complex products right yeah and um that that leads to uh, uh a uh, a recap of uh, a line that peter marks made in the iact annual meeting presidential plenary so I had those CMC hiccups in mind, and I asked him, you know, where are we? Uh, what's happening here? Uh, and um, so he, he essentially said that uh, uh, perfect is the enemy of good, uh, and you've got to start early. Uh, and developers have uh, been trying to, uh, he, didn't, he didn't use these words, but the impression was developers getting too cute, transferring planning for commercialization before having the correlation of a potency assay and critical quality attributes with uh, product activity. Uh, and, and that's an issue. Um, it, it's an issue when you don't understand the product well. It's an issue um, when uh, your clinical development program uh, may be in segmented stages or multi-centers and you don't have comparability. Uh, and uh, I think it's all part of getting educated in the space. Uh, we, we talked about the, the talent, but the talent is at all levels. It's at the management level. It's at the quality assurance level. So you have to have people that are steeped in the regulations and guidelines, but also who have the experience in product development, who have the experience in speaking with the FDA to understand really 
of what's required. And, and for me as an academic, it's a little bit different because we're dealing with first and human and often we don't know what a potency assay will be. We don't know what the critical quality attributes will be, but certainly when you get to phase three, when you get to registration trials, when you get to putting together a BLA, you've got to have answered those questions. It's a blessing and a curse. You know, cell therapies and even gene therapies have the potential for pleiotropic effects. They can you know, impact the course of a disease in multiple ways, and that's why they're great. Uh, but that leaves, especially early in development, considerable uncertainty about whether there even is a singular mechanism of action, uh, yeah. whether there are multiple mechanisms of action, and you know, let's be honest, Bruce. I think you know CQAs sometimes emerge rather later in the development process yeah. than one would wish, right? Yeah, and you know what? I I call this concept, uh, particularly with cell and gene therapies, the illusion of perfection mm -hmm. for developers and for regulators, for that matter, who were brought up in the era of small molecules, who there's a chemical entity and we can define it and we can define potency, we can define mechanism of action. You're exactly right. These cells are living drugs. They have pleiotropic effects. Uh, they have secondary and tertiary effects that we may not understand. So there does have to be a, a real balance between expecting a cell and gene therapy to have the criteria and the precision of a small molecule when it is a living drug with pleiotropic effects. Audrey, you're, you're sitting slightly to the side of, you know, Bruce has you know, been steeped in academia for decades and has you know, driven commercial products out of academia with, with great success to yeah. various, various companies um, and, and continues to do so. Um, I, we get stuck into all aspects of the de development cycle. But from your vantage point, do you think Peter Marks and the F now, Peter Marks tends to be sort of synonymous with the FDA in our field a bit because he's very vocal and he's very insightful. Uh, but do you, do you think Peter's getting it right? This this what Pete, what Bruce has referred to as sort of Goldilocks balance of the of the the perfect and the good. What what does it look like from where you're sitting? Yeah, it's it seems sometimes two steps forward, you know, one step back, so to speak. Um, but I will say, I think some further progress can be made in terms of leveraging progress that's been made so far. So for rare disease platforms that have proven to be effective in certain modalities, leveraging that success across other therapeutics, uh, there's some, some definite advances that can be made there. Um, and I think partnering with other institutions in terms of setting standards that make sense um, that don't let perfect get in the way of the good, but at the same time, deliver quality to patients that lives are at risk. Yeah. I think the concept is, you know, is, is, you know, the, the difficult concepts here, good enough, safe enough. That's not a phrase that anyone really likes. Right. You know, effective enough. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have to live in the, we feel strongly, we have to live in the real world 
And uh, yeah, the, we all talk about, oh, we're educating the FDA and we have a great relationship with the FDA. I've never heard anyone say that they don't have a great relationship with the FDA. But I think the FDA also, it, there's some frustration from their side about you know, being transparent transparent with information flow from sponsors and so forth, you know, present company um, excluded, of course. Uh, so I, I sort of see it from both sides. I think, um, I think Peter is steering a good path. Another interesting thing, uh, Bruce, is that, you know, after the, the Gottlieb pronouncements, you know, the FDA is hiring in this in CERNG just been out of control. They've, they've been hiring dozens and dozens and dozens of new people. And these days, you absolutely can get a PhD in serology and therapy or, or be an MD with that specialization. Um, so they are hiring these new people, but they are new people and they don't carry the oral history of the tribe uh, of multiple decades of regulation of these products. Uh, I'm going to ask a question which is sort of off script because I, I like doing that. So, and you're both going to get sort of the same question. So I'll give Bruce the advantage of uh, listening to me, me ask Audrey first. Audrey, over there, you've got tons of money. You've got a, a billion Deerfield dollars, which we all know are better than normal dollars even. You've got tons of space. You've got a billion square feet of space. You're going to hire a billion people. Um, what do you not have that you really would like, other than the end of the pandemic and everybody bloody getting vaccinated? Uh, what 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 would you really like to happen that hasn't happened yet in your neck of the woods? That's a great question. Um, I suppose it would be, you know, having the ability to tell the future, right? I know it's a ridiculous <laughs> example, but you know, there's so much changing so quickly. And it's impossible to know exactly what clients are going to need when. We're building suites that are flexible and modular and can be customized. But you really, we're doing all of this for a reason. We're all here for the same reason. And it's for the patients. And that's what motivated me. That's why I started the Center for Breakthrough Medicines with my colleagues. Um, and we want speed to market with quality, obviously, but we, in order to accommodate speech market, you have to have suites that are ready to go. We're talking to customers every day. When are you going to have your suites? When are you going to have your suites? There's so much demand out there. And it's ultimately outside of the economics, it's really for the patient. And so if we could accommodate that need as soon as possible, that would be the thing that we're missing is to really understand specifically where the demand is going to be so that we can accommodate it for the reason that we're doing, I mean, the reason that we're in this business. Uh, you know what? That is a good answer, actually. Um, let me get this straight. You want to convert the disco ball into the crystal ball? Is that how <laughs> yes, yes. Disco I want ball? to convert my disco ball into a crystal ball. We'll, we'll, um, we'll put a team of engineers on that for you. Yeah. But I think that's that's yeah. that's that's critical, and I think in manufacturing capacity as well. You know, nobody wants to overbuild. I'm not saying we're not still short of manufacturing capacity, but you can overbuild the wrong sort of manufacturing capacity. Yeah, that it's so hard to see around corners in this field. Bruce, you've got a multi-decade career as a rock star academician. You're basically a family name in this field. Your irretrievable name is irretrievably linked to uh, the first of the, the new generation products that, uh, to get approved by the FDA. Um, you're associated with companies that raise, uh, raise tons of money. Uh, what more could you possibly uh, want apart from the end of the pandemic and everybody getting vaccinated? Yeah, so th thanks, Anthony. First, I'll make the point that... Uh, no one can do anything in this field by themselves. I've been fortunate to be part of great teams 
over the past few decades and uh, mentored by Carl June, who's built a, a fantastic innovative team at Penn and the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies. Look, in research and development, you always need three things, money, space, and people. If you don't have all three, you're not going anywhere. And in, in cell and gene therapy, uh, I think we need another thing, uh, which is both uh, patience and persistence, right? We all wish that research and development were a smooth, straight road. But those of us who have been around a while know that there are bumps, there are potholes, there are twists and turns, and you have to be able to navigate those uh, and uh, do it with patience and persistence. And I think um, for those outside of the space, the expectations are high because we present this as very unique and it is, uh, but ultimately we want cell and gene therapy to be commonplace. Uh, we don't want it to be seen as a distinct mode of therapy from others where you have to, you used to have to go through the NIH DNA recombinant advisory committee for everything. And, and they didn't call it the rack for nothing. It was like uh, in some cases being tortured. Uh, but uh, what I'm getting at is uh, when there are challenges in cell and gene therapy, it's, it's held up uh, for those who uh, are resistant to new technology as well. Told you, it's never going to work. It's too expensive. It's too much work. Uh, but uh, uh, those of us who have been doing it a while and, and those of us who have been in research know that you have to fail a certain amount of time to be able to be successful in the long run. I think that's a great answer as well. Thank you both. Thank you both for joining us today. I think we've had an amazing discussion, actually, and we could talk for hours. Um, but we are moving into the new and exclusive for season two part of our podcast. Anthony, would you like to introduce our next segment? Yeah, I'm really excited to introduce this segment. We're calling it the Padufa Forecast. It's not the weather forecast, it's the Padufa Forecast. Padufa is an acronym in the United States for the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. Uh, which was the first act which mandated timely, uh, not just timely, but fast response and review times from the FDA for new commercial products. At the end of the day, we're not about INDs and CTAs. This field's about commercial approvals. So at the end of every podcast, one of my colleagues, Dr. Christina Fuentes, is going to outline to us products whose PDUFA dates are coming up in the next few weeks. In other words, which products are going to be given the thumbs up or the thumbs down by the FDA for commercial approval. So now it's over to the Padufa forecast with Christina. Thank you and welcome to Padufa forecast. I want to kick off today's episode by telling you a little bit more about the history behind Padufa dates, why we should care about them, and what has been going on in the cell and gene therapy field as far as approvals in 2021. Now, PDUFA stands for Prescription Drug User Fiat. A little bit of a tongue twister, mouthful there. So it goes by PDUFA for short. This was enacted in 1992 in an effort to expedite the FDA review process of a licensure application. Essentially, what that means is at the time, it took approximately 30 months 
for an application to be reviewed and a decision to be made as to whether or not a drug is approved. Today, that review time is much shorter. It is now down to 10 months, so 20 months shorter. And if an application is selected for priority review, that review time can be down to six months. The PDUFA date is essentially the deadline for the FDA to provide a decision. It's a high stakes moment for many companies because on that date, a decision is made for a program that has had many years of time, effort, and money put into it. I imagine it can be something like grad school. At the end, you know, you spend years and years on this project and you're outside a conference room waiting to hear whether or not your dissertation committee will let you graduate. You can tell I'm fresh out of grad school still a little bit, huh? Anyway, back to the matter at hand. The decision made on the Purdue, on or before the PDUFA date can be very high stakes for a company. You'll often see the stock market affected by upcoming PDUFA dates if an approval appears imminent. Now, in looking at, in reflecting on this past year, there have been several approvals in the gene-modified cell therapy space. In particular, these are CAR-T products. First, there's Brianzi, approved for relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. The Stiascarda this year, which was expanded for use to treat relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. And then there's Abecma. What really has it stand out from other CAR-T products approved to date is that it's an anti-BCMA CAR-T rather than anti-CD19. And it is used for treatment of relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. So this is all I have for today's segment. I hope you tune in next time where I'll talk about some upcoming PDUFA dates, including one for Siltacel, which if approved, would be the competitor to Abecma. Thanks, bye-bye now. Thank you, Christina, that was great. I, I think this is gonna become a really useful resource for this podcast going forward. Uh, to enable us to see a little bit into the future and know what to expect from the FDA in the cell and gene therapy approval field. Definitely. I think looking back on the podcast episode as a whole, Anthony, do you think we got the answers we were looking for? I mean, I, I, I do. Uh, the, one of the answers I got from Audrey is that they're building it, okay? They're taking that billion dollars of Deerfield money and they're building it uh, on the complete assumption that they will come. Mm. So if there have been manufacturing capacity shortages in the past, they are going to continue to be mitigated by these massive expansions like, like Disco and the center uh, is funding. You know, from Bruce, I think we got wise words on how to normalize cell and gene therapy and how that is going to be necessary, uh, you know, even in the context of the pandemic and vaccine hesitancy. I think normalizing this amazing technology that we all work on um, was the, that was the big takeaway I got from Bruce, and I'm, I'm so glad that somebody as persuasive as him is, is articulating this message. 
Absolutely. Um, as we are now wrapping up, I would just like to thank our audience for joining us for our first episode back for Facilitate Talks. Do make sure that you join us for the next episode where we will just be discussing the financial landscape for advanced therapy companies pitching private equity against strategics. Remember, you can watch all of our podcasts on demand via the Facilitate website or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. You can also find Facilitate and Dark Horse Consulting via social media on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. But that's all from us today and we will see you for the next one.